0: a loving God, and You are a just God. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, You are just. And You will forgive those who confess their sin to You. Wash us, Lord. Wash us so that we are whiter than snow. In Jesus' name. Amen. A funeral, which is very common if you work at a cemetery, but this one, the person was going to be be buried in the mausoleum. Now the mausoleum is the building that's in usually the middle of the cemetery, and the people don't get buried in the ground, they get buried in a tomb or a crypt. And so you have a big plate on the front of it, and then you put the body end of the casket and then you put the plate back on front well those have looked like kind of a like a honeycomb made out of concrete and so in order to prepare for the funeral you had to paint it because you didn't want the loved ones to be sitting there looking into this sort of dark gray tunnel so somebody like a poor college student got the draw the stick to get inside the crypt and paint it. So that was my job one day. And so you climb a little ladder up to about the third tier, get in the little single unit honeycomb. They're all single units, by the way. And uh, they're not very big. And so you have to lay down. And so there I am laying down on my back in the tomb. And I'm just painting away. You know, you have to paint your way from the backside all the way back out. Now, while you're laying in a dark gray crypt, lots of interesting things come to your mind at that moment. Like you hope the other college guys don't hurry and stick the plate back up front while you're in it. Like I would have thought about if my friend had been in there. But one of sort of the the creepiest feelings to me was I'm laying there in this tomb... And on every side, all the way around, just about ten inches away, is a dead body. I mean, Mrs. Smith is over here, and Mr. Smith is just about ready to get in the place I'm occupying. And then just sort of all around me, just not far away, is somebody in a tomb. Well, this morning we're going to close our series in Mark by, in some sense, crawling into a tomb. We're going to crawl into the most debated tomb in history, the empty tomb of Christ. Two thousand years ago, a man claiming to be the Messiah was buried in a tomb. Now, history tells us, if you go back and you look at the first century... There were a number of people within about a hundred years of Christ's life, a number of men who had risen to some sort of prominence, some sort of position, some sort of power, and they claimed, or people claimed for them, that they were the Messiah. So it wasn't actually very unusual that somebody would come along in the first century, like Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah. A number of different people made that kind of claim. That kind of claim, as you know, continues on today. People like a a David Koresh or a Jim Jones, they pop up on the screen every now and again and they're claiming to be some kind of savior or some kind of messiah. However, at some point in the movement, the leader, the person making the claim, dies Or disappears in some way. And up until this point, at the moment the leader dies, pretty quickly afterwards, the movement sort of unrolls and sort of collapses. All the people who had made a claim to be the Messiah, once they die, their movement just goes away. The people sort of go back home. There's nobody else to follow. And so you don't remember, you haven't heard many of the names that have made that claim. All of the people who claim to the, be the Messiah, their movements collapse with one exception. Jesus Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah, and when He died, even if you're just looking at from, it, a, from a historical viewpoint, after He died... His movement exploded. His disciples didn't pack up their bags and go home. They packed up their bags and went across the world with a message that Jesus, their Messiah, actually had defeated death, had come out of the grave. And now their movement, just 300 years later, swallows up the whole Roman Empire. And even today, marches around the globe. Why? I mean, what makes this Messiah different? And the question really goes back to this text, Mark chapter 16. It goes back to the tomb. Everything in Christianity hinges on an empty tomb. If you don't have an empty tomb, then you don't have Christianity. The Apostle Paul understood this. We uh, Carl read it for us this morning in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul probably, in these first couple of verses, is repeating some kind of creed that people would say in the first century, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter And then to the twelve. That's probably some sort of creed that Paul is replicating. And then he goes on to sort of underscore the creed by saying this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Any man... Any woman who who decides to trade in their life for Jesus, who understands that now they're here in this world to serve and not to be served. They're here in this world to give their life away and not always be grabbing for life. If that's how you live your whole life, because you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and He's not your Savior, then the one life you have has been wasted. You, You should have gotten the surf magazines. You should have tried to play the lottery. You should have tried to live in exotic locations. Because that's all there is. But if Jesus actually came out of the tomb bodily then what he's saying is that your body is going to be resurrected and you're going to be brought into a place that you cannot now imagine. No eye has seen what God has prepared for his people. And so you can begin to live this and this life by giving your life away. Dominic Crossan who some of us went to hear at UNCW he's a leader in the very liberal Jesus Seminar group he came to Keenan Auditorium and he gave a talk on Paul he's given a talk on Jesus before but he gave this talk on Paul at the end of the talk it, it, the the place was packed he had a standing ovation his conclusion about the resurrection is that the resurrection is fiction and in all likelihood, Jesus was buried in a shallow grave, and his body was eaten by wild animals. Frank Morrison, a name that you're probably not familiar with, 1930s British lawyer, was a skeptic to Christianity. And so he went about like a lawyer would to try to prove If the resurrection were true, because he knew if he could disprove the resurrection, then all of Christianity would unravel. And so he takes his sort of detective mind, his his skills as a lawyer into the history that's recorded about the resurrection to disprove the resurrection. And therefore, once and for all, even if it was just in his own mind, to settle the fact that Christianity is a fable. And in the process, he couldn't deny that Jesus rose from the tomb. He became a Christian. He wrote a book that you can still now get called, Who Moved the Stone? All four gospel writers record the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to close our study on Mark here in these first eight verses. And I want to look at Mark's account. And I want to look at it in these three ways. First, what you see emerging from the text is an unlike, unlikely witness. The first thing you notice is there's an unlikely witness to the resurrection. The second thing you see is there's an unlikely message and finally, there's an unlikely ending or an unusual ending. There's an, there's an unlikely witness to the resurrection. Then there's a, an unlikely message that's received. And then there's an unusual ending to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll get to that part. First, let's start with the unlikely witnesses. As you know, Jesus is crucified. He hangs on a cross and somewhere around 3 p.m., He dies. According to Mark 15, a man named Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body. He wraps it in some linen just like they would have done. There wasn't an an embalming like you would have today or like the Egyptians had. They would just wrap the body in some kind of linen. And Joseph of Arimathea does that and then he takes Jesus' body to a tomb that's cut out of a rock. He lays the body in the tomb, and a very large stone is then rolled across the entrance. All this was done in some haste. It's late afternoon on Friday. That's the afternoon before the beginning of the Sabbath. So as a ritual Jew, you would want to make sure you were clean for the Sabbath. And so they do that, and the Sabbath passes, the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. And then early Sunday morning, a group of three women... According to 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they come for what's like a final burial preparation of Jesus' body. Now, the first thing you notice here in Mark's account, and he seems to be highlighting it for us, is the witnesses of these three women. I want you to notice, just look back if you need to turn a page in chapter 15, verse 40 these women are named by mark and they're named saying they're they're looking from a distance at the death of christ they are a witness to the death of christ and then in verse 47 they're named again and they're named because they saw where jesus was buried and then again in verse 16 chapter 16 verse 1 they are the witness to the resurrection they are the first ones at the tomb. Now, all the way through Mark, Mark has been building this case for Jesus being the Messiah. Again, the time that Mark writes his Gospel, there could have been some other person on the scene saying they're the Messiah. And so Mark is trying to get the reader to understand this is the Messiah. You should trust in Him. Christianity, as we've said, its entire... Validity rests on the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And Mark seems to highlight these three witnesses. He's saying these are the three people you can go back to and you can ask. You can ask about Jesus' real death. You can ask about Jesus' real burial. You can ask about the empty tomb. You can ask these three people. And who are the three people that he chooses? It's the most unlikely witness in the first century. You know who they are? They're all women. Now that doesn't sound politically correct today. But I can tell you in the first century, if you were trying to build a case for Christianity, you wouldn't have chosen women. We know from history that women's testimony was not considered valid in court. If you had a case to be made and the only witnesses you had were women, then you wouldn't just, you just wouldn't take the case to court. Because the courtroom wouldn't accept a woman's testimony. We know from the early writings of a Christian skeptic named Kelsus, he said this about Christianity in the second century, we know the accounts of the resurrection are suspect. Because they are based on the testimony of women. Women are hysterical, Kelsus said. And plenty of people in the second century are going, yeah, he's got something there. I mean, yeah, the women I know are hysterical. I I wouldn't trust any of them. I think it's worth remembering, especially since we're here just after the Advent season, who were the first heralds of Jesus' birth? Who were the first ones given the story? Not Mary and Joseph, but but who did the angels come and visit? You remember? The shepherds. And the shepherds shared the same status as women in the first century. They were thieves, they were liars. And again, you couldn't bring a shepherd to a courtroom because everybody would say, Oh, you just can't believe his story. He's a thief. He's a liar. If you brought a woman to the courtroom, she's hysterical. She could say anything. Somehow this seems to confirm what Paul says, that God chooses the foolish things in this world. Whatever you think is foolish, to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Early Christianity was known as religion for poor people and for women. I love Calvin's commentary or comment on this. He says this about the text. Jesus gradually brought his followers along according to their capacity. And he began with the women. He even gave them a commission to announce the gospel to the apostles. So as to become their instructors. Which brings me to ask this question. Where are the disciples? I mean, they've been with Jesus all along. And Jesus has said, at least in Mark, three or four different times, look at me guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to die, and three days later, I am going to rise again. He says it in Mark chapter 8, he says it again in Mark chapter 9, he says it again in Mark chapter 10. And I'm asking myself now, looking at this text, why is it that not, not even just one of the twelve is kind of going, you know guys, I it's the third day. I mean, you know, He did do a lot of remarkable things while He was alive. I mean, maybe we should like just go and check. Just in case. And you don't have the disciples there at the empty tomb. They're all shut up in some kind of room, fearful of their own lives, fearful of what they've done confused about the situation. Every time it seems like, we've mentioned this several times, you look through Mark, Mark just never seems to shed much good light on the disciples. They're the ones that are hungry for power. Please, God, when you come into your place, put me right next to you. I want power. That's what I'm here for. I'm following you for a good place in line. They're the ones that ditch Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane and they're not the first witnesses to the tomb. You see, what will happen, especially if you get out into UNCW or other places, people are going to say the Gospels are like legends. They just sort of formed some 100, 200 years later. People looked back and said, well, I'm just going to write down what would be favorable to Christianity. I want people to believe in this Jesus that I'm believing in. So they write things down. If that were the case they never write this gospel. They would never have chosen women to be the key eyewitnesses because nobody in the second century would have believed a woman. They would have never said, well, let's make the main players the disciples. Let's cast them in the worst light. That's one of the ways you look at the Bible and you say, you know it's true. Now, if you're having a conversation with somebody, and I've had these conversations, I'm hoping you're having the conversations, and you, you, you come across a conversation with somebody and they just say, you know, well, I don't believe the Bible. You say, well, I believe the Bible, I don't believe the Bible. And you just kind of feel like, ah, I, I don't know what to do now. One of the places you can go is the resurrection. And the reason you can go to the resurrection is it doesn't take any special knowledge. You can go back in history, non-Christian history, and you can read volumes about what people said about Jesus Christ's crucifixion, his death, and what they try to come up with as the empty tomb. And there's all kinds of theories out there. You don't have to start in the Bible. You can just start in your history books. And what I'm saying, and what I think Mark is definitely saying, is that when you look at the life of Christ, and you look at his death, and you watch that after his death, Christianity exploded across the world, you have to ask yourself, why did this happen? It did happen. There's no question about that. The question is, why did it happen? And what I'm saying is it's at least reasonable to conclude that Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then what's the answer? You see, the skeptic has to give you an answer. Because Christianity just blew through the Roman Empire and spread across the globe and continues to do do so today. And we're asking ourselves, why is that? And Mark's giving you the answer in the witness of these three women, as unlikely as they are, that Jesus rose from the dead. I recently had a conversation with a guy who asked me if I believed everything in the Bible. And I said, well, I do, but I think... It's better just to say, I believe that God became a man, came into this world, and rose from the grave. And he's alive today. That's what I believe. If I can believe that, then any other place in the Bible is easier for me to believe in than that. I believe that God came in human form, defeated death, and walked out of a tomb. If God can do that, all the other places in the Bible now are minuscule compared to believing in that truth. And Mark says it without question. He's got unlikely witnesses to the tomb. And then you notice he brings an unlikely message. They're coming to the tomb early on the first day of the week. That's Sunday in a Jewish calendar. They're wondering, well, we haven't thought ahead. What's going to happen with this stone? We're not going to be able to move that. And they come and they find the stone that's been rolled away. Somebody's moved the stone and they encounter a messenger with a message the angel sitting with the white white robe now i want you to just try to imagine for a moment you're reading through the book of mark you don't know the end this is hard for us but just imagine you're you're reading through the book of mark You've read chapter 15, where all the disciples abandon him at his critical moment. You read all about Peter, how he constantly is falling over himself to distance himself from Jesus. And the messenger says this, go, hit, go tell his disciples, verse 7, go tell his disciples, what, what would you anticipate? What, what would you expect the message to be? If you hadn't read the rest of the verse, what, what would you think naturally? Oh, this is oh the angel. He's coming. He's seen it all. He's, he's somehow floating above the whole situation. He's seen everything that's been happening. He's especially been attentive at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's ready to give a message. Go tell his disciples. Tell his disciples that Jesus is trading them in. He's looking for a different dozen. These guys just haven't really cut the mustard. They could have at least come up with something, but now now they've gone and forget it. Just tell them I'm forgetting about them. Go tell His disciples that they're spineless. Go tell the disciples that they're backstabbers. Go tell the disciples if, if they think now, that I've come out of the tomb, that I'm going to give them any part of this new movement, they're going to have to come crawling back on their knees. That's what you would expect. That's what you would say, that's what these guys deserve. No, verse 7. It's just... Amazing when you you think about what would you expect God to do. He comes out of nowhere and just pours out His grace. He doesn't do any of the things that I just said. Instead He says, now I want you to listen women. I want you to go. I want you to tell Jesus' disciples that Jesus is coming for them. He wants to see them. You, you remember when Zacchaeus is up in the tree? Zacchaeus, who's, who's been a traitor to everybody in the city, who's stolen money from everybody in the city, Jesus comes and looks at Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is paralyzed, and Jesus picks up a rock and throws it and hits Zacchaeus. No, no he doesn't do that. He looks at Zacchaeus and what does he say? I would like Zacchaeus to be with you. It's incredible. He sees and knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And in spite of it, His grace overruns us. And He says, I'd like to be with you. Tell the disciples, I'm going ahead of them. I'm going to fulfill everything that I promised. I'm going to make the spineless disciples into the backbone of my new movement. Isn't that incredible? I'm going to make the spineless disciples into the very backbone of this new movement. Tell the disciples that I'm planning on using uneducated, ordinary men to communicate extraordinary Tell the disciples that the tomb is empty. Tell them that Jesus has conquered death. Tell them that He has paid their, their, their debt in full. Tell them that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tell them that Jesus has made the first move. He's come out of the tomb. He's extending His grace. Notice and get this. He's extending His forgiveness prior to their repentance. Before they make the first step towards Him, He comes running for them. Tell the biggest betrayer, Peter. You notice how Peter gets singled out in the text. Tell the disciples and And Peter, because he had done something no other disciple had done. Tell Peter, he's going to have the greatest capacity to lead. He's going to have the greatest capacity to forgive. Because he understands how much he's been forgiven. The most unlikely messengers are carrying the most unlikely message. John Stott says this, You can never anticipate God. He's always making the first move. He's always there in the beginning. Before man existed, God acted. Before man stirs himself to seek God, God has sought man. The Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness, sunk in a sin, God takes the initiative. He rises from His throne. He lays aside His glory. He stoops to seek until He finds Him. I wonder, I prayed about this this morning, this week. That that somebody here might have some sense that God is on the move and He's got you in His sights. He's overcoming all of your your rebellion. He's, uh, He's jumping over every wall you've put up. You have some sense that He is moving and you're the target. Is there anyone here like that? I remember the first time I felt that feeling. It was when I was in fifth grade. We've got some fifth graders here. I was probably 11 years old, 12 years old. I sat in the second row of a pew on a Sunday night. I had no idea what the pastor was talking about. I didn't really care to know what the pastor was talking about. What I cared was for him to get to the end of the sermon. Because we had a gym and as an 11-year-old, I was interested in shooting baskets after the service was over. And the quicker he got done, and as far as I was concerned, nothing was happening anyway, he might as well tie it all up. I'm sitting there as an 11-year-old, and some sensation came over me, and it was God Almighty saying, Paul, I'm on the move for you. I am coming for you. I have you right now in this pew. I have you in my sights. You know what my feeling was? Terror. I mean, You'd think it'd be overwhelming, right? Great, God's got me in His sights. See, but I knew what, even as a fifth grader, I knew what I looked like. I knew some things that I had said. I knew some things that I had done. And and I just couldn't stand God actually having His sights on my heart. I was terrified of a God who would examine me internally without ever asking to even open one door. He rushed right in, never asked for an invitation. Thankfully, the good news that Jesus is sharing here with his disciples, I heard. I didn't necessarily hear it that day, but I began to listen. Go tell the disciples and Paul Phillips. Jesus is on the move for him. And Go tell Paul that Jesus is planning to fulfill all that he's promised for Paul before the foundations of the earth were laid. Go tell Paul that Jesus is still making spineless disciples into the backbone of the Christian movement. And, and make sure Paul hears this. That Jesus is still using unschooled, ordinary men to bring the transformation of the gospel to all kinds of lives. Make sure he knows that part. He's going to need that part. At the end of the service, I had to come find the pastor. I didn't tell him anything about a sermon because I didn't know anything about a sermon. But I knew something about the Holy Spirit was moving. So if you're one of those people, it may have nothing to do with the sermon. But somehow you have, if, if nothing else, a sense that God has you in His sights. He's moving toward you. I hope you'll come and tell me. leads me to the final point and really my conclusion. We have some unusual witnesses here. We have a very unusual message. And then you'll notice probably every Bible has an unusual ending. You get to the end of verse 8 and then you have something that says this, and this is what my Bible says. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Chapter 16 verse 9 through 20. Almost all scholars believe that this was a later edition. There's a number of good scripts of the Gospels. When you begin to put those together, you just notice some patterns and this is one of those that is likely not in the original. And so the question comes up as to is verse 8 the real ending? Or did somehow we lose the ending? Because let's look at verse 8. And they went out, this is the women, they fled from the tomb, they're trembling, they're astonished, they said nothing to anyone, and they're afraid. And so this is kind of an unusual ending, if this is the ending. I think it probably is the ending. But even if it's not, I think we can say this. When you get to Mark chapter 4, and Jesus calms the storm. And then he turns and looks at his disciples. What's the emotion of the disciples at that moment? They're terrified. It's the same Greek word. They're afraid. And they ask this question. Who is this? When Peter, James, and John go to the Mount of Transfiguration and they say, they say, they see Elijah and Moses and Jesus is transfigured like some kind of bright light. What is their emotion? What is Mark, what's the Greek word that Mark uses at that moment? They're afraid. The same one that we have in Mark chapter 4 is the same one we have in Mark chapter 9. But this time they don't ask a question. Their question from Mark chapter 4 gets answered. Mark chapter 4 they ask, who is this that can calm the seas? And in Mark chapter 9, a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son. He's the Messiah. And now, you crawl in this empty tomb. And you crawl out and you're stunned that nobody's there. And the women are afraid. The same word. And it's like Mark as the writer, just letting it hang out there for the reader. Jesus Christ is asking you the same question That he asked his own disciples, now that you know, who do you say that I am? Is God Almighty moving toward you? Do you have some sense? I, I don't have it every day. I had it in the fifth grade that he had me in his sights. Who do you say that he is? Jesus himself and John says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Let's pray together. Lord, this is the key. If you've been eaten by wild animals... If you just disappeared, if you're still in the tomb, just got the wrong tomb, went to one that was empty instead of the one that was full, all the other theories that are out there, then Christianity just evaporates and goes away. But if it's true that you have come, that death now no longer has a sting, we are hopeful that we will have a body, a new body. That you're not just saving a soul, you're not just saving a spirit, you're saving our bodies. We're going to have real bodies in heaven. We're going to see each other. We're going to know each other. We're going to, we're going to laugh and we're going to sit around and enjoy great food. And we're going to enjoy all the things that we want to go on forever and ever in this world. That's your promise. Lord, I pray that you would be on the move in the lives of these people, if not today, this year. That many more people like Nate Graff would stand up and be able to recall you being on the move in his life. Lord, you have provided for all of us more than we can use. And even if we gave everything back, we couldn't earn what you've given. And so I pray that you would take our material gain here, use it for the kingdom. Use it for your expansiveness across the globe. Use it for the gospel. The gospel that says Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ was buried. And Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.